I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hi, friends. Welcome to the show. This is Once Upon a Gene, and I'm your host, Effie Parks. If you're new here, thank you for joining us. I hope you've been enjoying the show so far. There's a big catalog, so go ahead and peruse through topics that you'd like or just start from the beginning. Please also send me a message if you have any questions or if you're looking for something specific, okay? If you have been following me on social media especially, you know that we've started a one rad club called Once Upon a Gene Therapy. It's a walking club. We're all motivating each other and empowering each other and lifting each other up to have a healthier day-to-day. Get some steps in. Move your body. Remember who you are, okay? Remember who you are and how valuable what you bring to your family and to the children that you're caring for every single day and how important it is to make sure that you're taking care of yourself. Our walking club is awesome. Come join our Facebook group. We also are all over the world and encouraging Saturdays or Sundays to actually meet up in person, post something in your local group, see if you can get some other families, parents, caregivers to join you on this walk, meet people, human beings in real life. I know we all love our internet because it's the way we stay connected and it's the only way many of us can be connected with each other with the demands of our life. But I think You'd be surprised what you can do if you just make the decision to make this a habit, to put yourself first once in a while and join our walking club. You're going to love it. Okay, so many of us, you know, after becoming parents to our beautiful medically complex kids, we find ourselves at somewhat of a crossroads where our professional career aspirations and personal responsibilities collide. Actually, scratch that. (laughs) It's not a crossroads with any options, really. More like being rerouted on a hard detour and that annoying map lady won't stop repeating, recalculating route. (laughs) Okay, the journey of parenting, especially when caring for children with medical needs, it often demands sacrifices that reshape our lives in profound ways. I myself have experienced this firsthand. I had to step away from the vibrant buzz of my own salon that I had in downtown Seattle with a full, beautiful, loving clientele. And like my guest today on the show, she was also forced to surrender and to take this detour and leave her lifelong dream job of being a teacher and enjoying the classroom's bustling energy that she loves so much. And it was replaced by the quiet, persistent demands of caregiving. This detour, unexpected and challenging, it really does lead us down a road of profound personal transformation. We learn the depths of our strength and the true meaning of dedication. We might even find ourselves with new gifts, new points of pride, 
somewhere, doing something we never saw ourselves doing, and using muscles that we didn't know we had. There's always going to be grief in so many areas for us, that's a fact. But I believe if we're looking and paying attention and continuing to put one foot in front of the other with hope, we will probably discover a lot more magic. My guest today is going to take us through her experience, and I think that you might hear some familiar things in your own story. Please welcome my guest, Emily Crawford. Hi, Emily. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. I'm so happy you're here. My girl, Jennifer Seidman, sent me your name, and I was like, duh, I'll do anything for any Seidman that exists. And you're also connected with the Courageous Parents Network, which anyone who listens to this show regularly knows that I'm a super fan of. So welcome. And I'm really excited to get to know you a little better and cover an important topic of identity loss and identity metamorphosis after you become a parent to a medically complex kid. Yes. Thanks so much for having me. I also am a big fan of Jennifer and obviously Courageous Parents Network. And I'm so happy to join them on their new parent champion journey. Yes, congratulations. We'll get into that a little bit later in in our conversation. So can you just start with a brief sort of origin story of your entrance into this world of parenting medically complex kids? Of course. So I have four children. Two of my the oldest are twins. And then we have Chloe, our middle child, and then Brody's our youngest. Our daughter, Chloe, the first eight years of her life were seemingly normal she was met all the benchmarks. And then um, when she was eight years old, she started presenting with some really unique symptoms um, that no one could figure out or describe. So it took um, two urologists and then a pediatric gynecologist, which I learned are very difficult to find, to eventually have her diagnosed with a life-threatening illness within her lymphatic system. Very rare. Um, her presentation is, like most of our kids, one in a million. And so it was kind of like when you go on a roller coaster and you're going up and up and up and up and you're kind of like sitting at the top. And then in 2020 was when we kind of made our descent. So the last three years have really been trying to keep our daughter alive. Yeah. Are you comfortable sharing her diagnosis in case other people are seeing these sort of symptoms in their own story? Yeah, absolutely. So it started with um, what we thought was bladder incontinence. We discovered that it wasn't actually urine leaking out of her body. It was um, lymphatic fluid, which is called chyle, and it was actually coming out vaginally. And so our body makes three liters of lymphatic fluid a day, and she was dumping it all out. So those important things your body needs, like your immune system, your vitamin D, the albumin that you use to pump your heart and keep your blood pressure uh, normalized, all that was coming out of her. So an MRI revealed this mass-like malformation all within her pelvic region, and it engulfs her colon and all her female reproductive organs. Does it have a name? Yeah, so her particular diagnosis could be could be called a central conducting lymphatic anomaly, and she sits under the umbrella of vascular anomalies. Okay. And any genetic testing ever done on her? Yes. So her diagnosis is complicated by a PIK3CA overgrowth mutation and a KRAS mutation. There we go. Okay. Thanks for sharing all that. I appreciate it. So one thing that I was talking about with Jen when your name came up was this idea of how most, if not all of us, have one of the one of the caregivers in the family has to leave their leave their job, leave their career, leave something that they were doing to become a full time caregiver for our kids for various reasons. And I know you were a teacher. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, of course. So I've wanted to be a teacher my entire life. 
funny enough, I asked Santa for an overhead projector when I was eight years old. Um, so I had the whole shebang. My dad even hung a pull down blind to like from my wall so I could like pull down the projector screen and like put up my math problems and teach all of my American Girl dolls. So I kind of aligned my whole life to this dream. I went to college. I was a TA. I worked in the public school system for 10 years and I was kind of at the pinnacle of my career right before diagnosis. I had one teacher of the year. I was presenting at teaching conferences and I just loved what I did. It's kind of one of those things if someone to name three words about me, the teacher would nine times out of 10 be one of those words. It was just my passion. And so when she was first diagnosed and we were in and out of the hospital, it was the year of COVID. So it was, I kind of could hang on to my career because I was teaching virtually from a computer. And then in 2021, when everybody went back to school and I, I wanted to so bad and I tried and I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't physically teach a 25 kindergartners from the PICU. So I had to close my career and pack up my classroom and move all of my contents to my attic. So it was really hard for me because I, that's all I've ever wanted to do. It's all I've ever known. And now I was immersed very quickly into this medical parenting world. Oh. That's so heartbreaking. Well, also like loving the visual of your projector and your full down screen. I love that story. Oh my gosh, the emotional impact. Can you describe that sort of emotional journey that you went through when you had to leave teaching and pack up your stuff and put it in the attic to care for Chloe? And and how did that giant forceful shift like affect your sense of identity? I mean, it's hard and I struggle. I'm honestly to this day, I I struggle very hard with not teaching. I know a lot of teachers, it's really hard to be a teacher right now. And a lot of teachers are actually leaving the field and I am like desperately wanting to crawl back into it. But it's, I have always said I am my happiest in a room full of children. And so now I'm just in a room with just my child and it's, it's hard. And, and I, to look at it like physically as I'm now packing up my classroom, I'm like loading the books and putting them in my attic. And instead in turn, I'm replacing the space in my car with a wheelchair that I never thought I would need and transporting her back and forth to hospitals. And it's just this like really sad shift in what my roles are now. And I think I was so used to the, to the getting my kids to school. They, they went to school where I taught. So I put them in their classrooms. We'd come home, dinner, practice, pack lunches, that kind of thing. And that's not my life anymore. And it's been a really hard shift for me personally. I know so many people can relate to this, including myself, but I can also tell how much more passionate perhaps you are about your career than some of us also. And I was wondering if maybe you could kind of dig a little deeper into some of those like initial struggles that you faced in terms of your emotional well-being during that transition from teacher to full-time caregiver that others can probably relate to. Yeah, I really struggled at first just wondering like, well, what am I what am I supposed to do? And, and a question I always ask myself, which I think is really hard is, is this it for me now? Like, you know, teaching is a career that's really, you're really on, like it, you can't, you can't do it at your leisure. You can't do it when you want to do it. it. You have to be on Monday through Friday all day. And so it was, it was hard for me to say, okay, is this it? My life now is wake up, pull meds, give meds, drive to therapy, drive to this like OT, PT, behavioral health and all these appointments and then just come home and wake up and do it all over again. We're in the classroom. I have creativity. I can make these lessons. I would transform my classroom into Jurassic Park and 
bring in faux greenery and all my lessons would be thematically themed to dinosaurs. And it was just such a whole different shift for me where I got really dark. It was really isolating. My core group of friends are all teachers. And so I would get together with them. And I felt like we had not, like I had nothing to contribute to the conversation anymore. Like what are they, like they want to hear about how I had to drive urgently down to our hospital because Chloe's Broviac line broke. Like I can't relate to what they're talking about in regards to student behavior or new initiatives being set in the school. So I just felt like alone. I was super alone and I was super isolated and I was, wasn't connected really with anybody where I lived because nobody was walking what I was walking in this life-threatening, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, rare disease diagnosis with a future that's extremely unknown. You know, as you're talking, these are, for lack of a better way to say it, kind of my favorite kinds of stories, because you're talking about teachers talking about their lessons plans and their this and their that and their day to day. And someone like me and someone like another caregiver listening is putting plugging those own things into their mind, right, into the career or friend group that they lost. And you are saying your things and the visual in their life is popping up at the same time, which is it's so connective. Right. And it's it's such real life for us that we can see each other in our own stories, in each other's stories, rather. Right. Yeah. And it's a big loss and it's 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 frustrating and it evokes like a lot of envy and anger and sadness and grief and like all of those things. And again, it's that isolation piece, right? It's another form of it that just kind of starts stretching us further and further away from like this reality that we thought we had. Yeah. I would say too, you know, being home with Chloe, I had, I was one of those moms and this might sound selfish, but I never wanted to be a stay at home mom. And I know that is a dream for so many people, but for me, it was like, I wanted to be in the classroom. And so now I had that feeling of like, okay, I'm doing what most moms would just love to be doing and I'm not happy doing it. And it was so hard. And at the same time, I had a husband who's our insurance carrier and our who brings home the finances for our family. And he gets to leave every day and go to work outside of the home and it's manual labor, but like he has a place to go and kind of get his mind off of it and, and work. And then he can come home and have his time with the kids where I'm the one who's answering all the insurance calls and the appointment um, reminders and the palliative care calls where it, it was difficult, not only for me to feel isolated, but also in my marriage to be like, I'm really jealous of you and what you get to do. Oof, that's a whole other podcast episode, <laughs> Emily. <laughs> yes, yes. And we should definitely talk about all of that. Oh, my gosh. And I don't think every mom wants to be a stay at home mom. I think just like everyone has their own dreams, right? And what they want to do. Some some people are total job girls. You're obviously the kind of teacher that all of us parents want working in the schools. And some people just have a gift at being a stay-at-home mom, right? So I, I don't think anything sounds selfish like that. Can you talk about how you adapted or how you have been coping with the loss of your professional identity and those dreams that you had since you were less than eight, probably? And what sort of steps have you taken towards acceptance? Absolutely. So um, I think the biggest part of my journey, which I always encourage anyone to be a part of their journey, is uh, mental health therapy. Uh, I see my psychologist every week and we've really unpacked this and it's been very helpful for me. I am part of the, you know, walking with the other Once Upon a Gene mom. Well, that's right. I was going to say, uh, have you heard about Once Upon a Gene therapy coupled with your talk therapy? <laughs> yes. So I do get to the gym every day, which is very helpful for me and it's my time. And uh, luckily our daughter is able to participate in therapies by herself 
not by herself, but with her therapist. And I'm able to, um, I walk the parking lot while she's in there. So it's some really good time for me. But I have also really leaned into these friends who, who put in the time to learn about what I'm going through. And so they can sympathize and understand. And I just, I have a network of some really close friends who I can call and I make sure to make time for myself, whether it's just grabbing dinner with a friend or going to see a movie. And because like I have told myself while Chloe and my children are my number one priority and taking care of them and seeing Chloe as healthy as she possibly can be. It's not all I am. I I'm Emily and I was Emily before this and I'm going to be Emily through this. And so just staying connected the best I can volunteering at anything that puts me inside the building at my son's school. (laughs) I do that, but I have learned the hard way that that is not the best spot for me either. I've volunteered and every time I volunteer, I leave crying. So desperately wishing I was in the classroom instead of volunteering there. It's a a learning process every day. And I really have to center myself every day. And I am a words of affirmation girl. And so when I hear palliative care doctors and our oncologist and my psychologist saying, Chloe would not be where she is and not be doing so well in this awful situation if it weren't for your care. And that's what keeps me going. Oh, oh my gosh, Emily, you just said so many things. And so much of that is my love language. I have never just actually sat down and thoughtfully thought of a better way to say this, but I say this a lot on the show, is that I am the most important person in this equation of taking care of my family and Ford. Because if I am not taken care of and if I am not in tip-top shape, crumbles start falling down. And then there's landslides, right? And I think so many times parents, moms especially, are driven toward guilt and shame and stuff on putting themselves first and making that quality time for themselves and seeking their therapies and making time to have friendships that it just gets lost and you completely lose your identity. And then you almost become this identity of, well, I can't because I can't. And then they believe it. Yeah. Were you always pretty good at putting yourself first in the beginning of this? Like you said, you're working out, you're going to therapy, you have friendships, you have not just friendships, but friendships that you nurture. So how did you how did you do all of those things? Because those are very big things. And any caregiver I know is lucky to really nurture one of those. I will say no. No, I did not do that in the beginning. It's been a really, I mean, it's been a three-year process for me. When Chloe, like I said, when Chloe first got sick, it was a zero to 100 very quickly. We spent, you know, the first year of diagnosis pretty much living. I spent more nights in a hospital bed than my own bed in a year. My friends were like the nurses and the doctors. And then I came home was like, oh, wait, those friends don't actually exist where I live. And so I just had to, I was very intentional with which friends in my circle or which friends, even if they're, I had to make new ones, which are going to not, don't even have to relate, but who are going to sympathize and understand that one, I am going to be the most unreliable friend there is. I may make an appointment with you or a date with you two weeks out. And I'm going to cancel on you like 10 minutes before I have to leave because Chloe's in some kind of crisis. And so I have great friends who understand that. I always have to have a contract. Like if you want to be my friend, I'm one very unreliable Two, I may get on the phone and vent to you about crazy medical stuff you don't understand. <laughs> but three, in return, I'm, I am I like to say one of my strengths is I'm such a great listener. And I always tell my friends when they start saying things like, oh, I shouldn't be venting to you. Like this is, this is such a, I'm always saying your problems are just as big to me. And what you're going through is just as important to me. And 
everyone has their own stress and it's their their stress whatever it is that is difficult for you is yours to own and I'm here for you so just understanding the the right friends that that fit that criteria and I had to learn that like some friends I couldn't I couldn't keep those friendships and take care of Chloe at the same time and had to let them go so that sounds intense but it was (laughs) it sounds very strategic and wise to me And something you said about the friends that always have a disclaimer when they have something going on. I love that because everyone does that to us, right? Like our friend, we almost don't even know our other friends anymore because they don't really tell us anything because they don't feel like they can talk to us about it. And it is important to know that please talk to us about it. And obviously, if you're still in the circle and if you've you've crossed the line of the big red lava pit and you're still with us, we want to know what's going on in your life and we care. And so don't stop telling us stuff because then one day it just fizzles out. Yeah, for sure. Like, I want to know that your dishwasher broke. That's that's awful. <laughs> I would never want to hand wash dishes. That's awful. So just oh tell God. me. <laughs> you cracked me up. Let's talk about, you know, your, your sort of teaching skills. So, like, what skills from when you were a magnificent, magical teacher in your career did you find sort of surprisingly useful as your role in being Chloe's caregiver slash mom? I would say there's the relationship piece. I think we all love our children and we have unique relationships with each of them, but having to walk your child, and I have a, at this point, she's a preteen and she is has a lot to say, but walking her through these procedures and advocating for her and saying, you know, she can't do this procedure without anesthesia. Something very simple for her, for most kids is a G-tube change out, right? It's like changing an earring. Chloe has to be fully sedated just to get a G-tube changed out. And so advocating for her, but also talking her through the procedure. I almost feel like I'm a child life specialist, but I don't have the, the credentials. But I've learned to speak. I've you, Always in my career, I, I taught kindergarten primarily, was working with kids and understanding the situation they were and de-escalating behaviors. And I feel like I use this all the time with Chloe and all her other siblings to understand what we're going through. I don't think my creativity will ever dull. I just, anywhere I can, I have a nephew who's four that I will fight for every day. I mean, I like voluntarily pick him up multiple times a week just because I adore being around small children, but getting to incorporate some of the things I used to do in the classroom with him and uh, my son Brody is, is always brings me so much joy and just being a multitasker. Teachers are the best multitaskers in the world. And I used to be able to spin like three plates at one time and I still can do it. So <laughs> while while holding a G tube and venting at the same time. <laughs> right. While flushing meds and measuring out beads, I can still answer phone calls and pack a lunch. So <laughs> Emily, I'm just like, how do we get someone over there to help you so you can be a teacher again? Like, it's breaking my heart. <laughs> like, you need to be a teacher so bad in school. Oh, oh, my gosh. Okay, let's talk about the Courageous Parents Network for a little bit. Congratulations, by the way. You were recognized as a CPN parent champion. So can you talk a little bit about what that is, what that means, perhaps how you were motivated to connect with them, slash what did you do to get that beautiful recognition? Thank you so much. I guess my journey with CPN started when I was having one of those very isolating moments and said, oh my, there has to be people out there that feel the way I feel where I'm just like my whole world's changed. The overwhelming amount of, you know, having millions of specialists and all the meds. I was just like, for someone who has 
has no experience. I was like, there's got to be other people out there. So we had been brought into palliative care under the palliative care umbrella. And it, one, that alone changed our lives dramatically. And is I've fallen in love with pediatric palliative care and will shout it from the rooftops. But I kind of Googled like, pediatric palliative care support into like a Google and CPN came up. And so I just like deep dove one night into all their resources and started following them everywhere I could. And every, it's one of those things where you like, you're reading stuff and you're like, this is me, this is me, this is me. And I just related to so many of their resources. Then I would start watching these videos and hear these moms talk. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like there are people out there. There might not be people that I see see daily. I could walk past these people in the grocery store and I don't know who they are, but they could secretly be courageous parents that I don't know, but there's got to be a place that brings all these people together. So I started watching all their videos and just really connected hard and fell in love with what they were doing. Um, I fell in love with palliative care. It just seemed like a really good fit for me. And then when the opportunity to uh, apply to be a parent champion appeared and I read the criteria of you could be presenting as an advocate for palliative care. You could be reaching out to support groups. And I just was like, oh, I can use some of my teaching skills. I love to be in front of people. I love a presentation. I, I'm tickled just to make a PowerPoint. So, oh my God. Yes. Yeah, so I was like, maybe this is where I, maybe this is where I fit. And so I applied and um, got to meet all wonderful people, Blythe and Jennifer and Amy, and they're just powerhouses and I want to be them when I grow up and I got found out I was a parent champion and then we all met in Boston and we, we the first night we were there we sat around Blake's kitchen or dining room table and I had imposter syndrome at first and I talked to them about it but at the end of the night like I was in tears and I was like these are my people like I found people that know what it's like I found people that are going through what I've been through and what I'm going through and there is no better feeling than finding your people and so we had so much fun in Boston and now we get to kind of just be evangelists of the palliative care, like just shout it from the rooftops and we're getting plugged into some really cool things and all the parent champions are doing awesome stuff where they live and in their area and in their communities. So it's really, it's going to be so cool what unfolds this year. Oh, oh my gosh, I love that so much. You completely transform and have the most enormous sense of relief when you find your people. And I'm not talking about the people that keep you down. I'm talking about the people that not only lift you up, but shine a bright, bright, bright light in front of you. So how has being a part of the CPN sort of given you back some kind of identity or sense of purpose? First, just having these group of women, you know, I, Lindsay spoke about it on your podcast too, but just these group of women who are, are kind of plugged in, like if you were to look at a, a United States map, we're literally like all over the country, but all of us are just such, like doing such big things where we are, but then at the same time, we're all just like people parenting and doing the hard stuff and we all understand what that's like. So that's been amazing. Also getting to just be mentored by Blythe and Jennifer and Amy and Chrissy, who are wonderful and are even teaching me things and making me a better parent to Chloe. And then just kind of seeing what's in the future for um, courageous parents and kind of what we're all starting to do. Like we get to meet and say, oh, I'm presenting for these people or we're getting ready to start to present to this group or this hospital. It's just knowing these huge audiences that are going to have access to the resources, especially their beautiful new neurojourney resource is 
is really, really exciting. Totally. You know, you remind me of my friend Adam Johnson, who was also a teacher before he himself was diagnosed with a rare disorder. And he always talked about uh, especially speaking on stage and like starting a podcast of his own, how he finally felt like a teacher again because he was he was able to educate others, you know, just way differently than he had expected, but that it still was sort of fulfilling him in that way. And it kind of sounds like that's sort of your liftoff point from CPN, what's happening. Very cool. And I just want to say to anyone listening, like you have a place at Courageous Parents Network. It isn't for a specific type of parent. It's for parents who are raising medically complex kids. So really do what Emily did and go stalk their website and peruse it and message people like her and Lindsay and Parvathy and Jennifer and Blythe and all those people that are mentioned and they've all been on the show. Go see if you can find what you're looking for there because I guarantee you're at least going to find a wonderful network and some great resources, but it might also ignite something in you to take a direction of advocacy like it has for Emily. What I'll say is one of the um, most meaningful things I you know when I listened to Lindsay's podcast and meeting her in person and listening to her share just the incredible work she does in um, Washington. But at first I panicked. I was like, oh my gosh, she's getting like bills passed. Like she's legit. Like she's going to the government. And I was like, oh my, what, what am I doing? What am I doing for this? And then it took me like a little bit to realize I, I I realized this as I'm on my flight home from Boston and I'm, I'm like, you know what? Like everyone's going to have their thing. Like Lindsay's might be advocacy and she's so good at it. It doesn't mean that like I have to be, an, I don't have to go to, you know, the Senate and advocate. I don't have to do, you know, go to these conferences and present for rare disease and Chloe's disease. Like I have to do what, what means feels right to me and what's meaningful to me. And, and so that's what I'm working on and trying to figure out. But I panicked at first thinking like, I have to do all these things to, to be a champion or to be a, a good advocate for Chloe's disease or a child with palliative care. But I've realized like, I just need to hone in on what I'm good at. And then Lindsay's going to be super good at something and poverty's really good at something. And uh, Maria's really good at something. And so um, that's kind of been a learning curve for me, and but I'm excited. I love that. Yeah, there is no hierarchy of advocacy. Uh, no, no kind is better or more important than the other. It's exactly what you said. It's find what you're good at. Find what's calling to you. Find what makes you feel warm. It might be starting a patient advocacy org. It might be funding research. It might be palliative care or podcasting or building community or policy, whatever. It just matters that you do. Yeah. So what are your hopes and plans for the future right now? Like what's kind of on your heart for both you and for Chloe? Right now we are really kind of diving into some fertility stuff for her with her disease being primarily around her female organs. So that's kind of uncharted territory. There's no protocol, obviously, in rare disease. We are just, it's always a dot, 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 what's next? So that's been a huge learning curve for for me, one um, is how to advocate for uh, fertility. And like Chloe, I think she gets it from her mom. She is happiest around children and thrives around children. So if I can um, give her any shot at potentially being a mom someday, somehow, um, I want to make sure that's, that I honor her goals, just like my dad honored mine by hanging a blinds on my wall <laughs> to be a teacher. So I just really want to honor her and her goals. And my hope is just keep on moving, hopefully in the right direction. Her disease is very, very unpredictable and scary. And every good day, we just, I just feel one step forward, but I'm also okay when we have to take two steps back. But just 
having some peace with understanding that this, I don't know what tomorrow is going to look like and that's okay. Amen. Adapting flexibility and not looking too far into the future and getting attached to it. Some of our superpowers that we end up cultivating. Yeah. And just if you can, maybe keep close track and some notes on your journey through this fertility sort of stuff. And if Chloe and you are ever comfortable in the future, I'd love to talk about this because I'm sure a lot of parents are also going through that or might be going through that. So keep track of it if we can ever have a future conversation on the show about it. Yeah, I'd love to. Yep. I will let you know. I'm I'm just now diving in. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, do you have any advice that you would give to other parents facing, you know, a similar situation in terms of maintaining their identity, leaving their career and just overall well-being? Um, I think we spoke about it. Just one, taking care of yourself. You you know, like you said, Effie, if you don't take care of yourself, then your house is going to fall apart. Or <laughs> I know mine would if I didn't. But also just however you can identify post-diagnosis through diagnosis, just remember like you weren't always that person and, and what made you happy then. How can you integrate that into your life now and, and not forget who you were before this? Because that person's still there, tucked somewhere inside. It just is going to look a little different than it did before. I love that. My mom has always said for the 900 years that she's had kids, when we would leave the house, she would say, remember who you are. And that never became more useful to me than it did after Ford. So I love that. Thanks, Emily. You rock. I'm so happy to have met you. I'm so happy you exist. Thank you for your teaching skills that you will be bestowing upon the rare disease community. And thank you for being my guest. I look forward to sharing our chat. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. It was so therapeutic for me to talk (laughs) through this and I hope it's helpful to somebody else. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, Please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.